Welcome to episode 35, The Truth About the Existence of God. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you are having a Facebook or Twitter conversation about the topics of abortion, socialism, the Constitution, the Federal Reserve, birthright citizenship, or the existence of God, please share the TruthQuest episode. If you are listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a minute and scroll down on the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. Another way you can help me grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com. All donations will be used to expand the reach of the show. The easiest way to stay up to date on the podcast is to subscribe to it on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also subscribe to the YouTube channel. It's available on Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean as well. Finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash TruthQuest podcast. I named this podcast the TruthQuest for one reason, to make the point to my listeners that my only agenda is to discover the truth about whatever topic we are discussing. Yes, I have my biases, but I try to leave them at the door and explore the evidence rather than only looking for evidence that supports my bias. When it comes to Christian apologetics, it is clear that proving God's existence or the fact that Jesus rose from the dead will never be proven in a manner we are all familiar with by watching TV legal dramas, beyond a shadow of a doubt. However, I have found Frank Turek and Norman Geisler's approach to apologetics to be the most helpful of any other communicators, specifically their approach in their bestseller, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. The title says it all, but it is a message I would hope you would internalize. It is simply, when you weigh the evidence for the existence of God, it takes more faith to believe he does not exist than it does to believe that he does. Or in the case of Jesus' resurrection, it takes more faith based on the evidence to believe he did not rise from the dead. The most reasonable explanation, however, is that he did indeed rise from the dead. See episode 5 for more about the resurrection. In today's episode, I'm going to present three arguments that God exists, specifically that a theistic God exists. That simply means some kind of supreme being or deity. Most of the material comes from Turek and Geisler's book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. By the way, if you you find their way of thinking compelling and you want more, check out crossexamined.org, that's with a D on the end, where Frank Turek continues to teach from their book on college campuses and via online courses. The first argument to prove that God exists, specifically a theistic God exists, is called the cosmological argument which has to do with the beginning of the universe. The basic argument is that, number one, everything that had a beginning had a cause. That's known as the law of causality, a fundamental principle in science. It makes science possible because science is a search for causes. Number two, the universe had a beginning. We know this is true from the Big Bang. Speaking of the Big Bang, this theory of the beginning of the universe is widely accepted by scientists, both atheists and religious-leaning Now, you will have to forgive me for this, but I can't help but tie the content of all the episodes together when applicable. So you know how climate change advocates claim there is consensus in the scientific community that global warming is happening and man's activity is causing it. Despite the fact that that claim has been refuted over and over, they continue to trot it out. In the case of the Big Bang, we really do have as close to a scientific consensus as you can get, yet many of these same people argue against it. All right, sorry for the tangent, but I think it's important to tie these things together. So, continuing with the cosmological argument. Number three, the universe had a cause. This is where God comes in. 
When you hear atheists try to explain the universe without God, they will argue that it emerged from existing material, kind of like their Darwinist evolution arguments, which we will discuss shortly. This argument of theirs brings us to a question for skeptics. Where did the existing material from which the universe was created come from? That is a question they typically have no answer for. They fail to acknowledge that the universe emerged from nothing. Essentially, time, space, and matter came into existence when the Big Bang occurred. Well, who is the Big Banger? That's where God comes in. When you walk through the rest of the evidence of the universe creation, the second law of thermodynamics, the ever-expanding nature of the universe, the afterglow of the Big Bang explosion, uh, quote-unquote radiation, the precise cosmological ripples that were formed from the Big Bang, and Einstein's theory of general relativity, and you can't help but notice how it seems to line up with the biblical account of Genesis, that the world or universe was created. You remember the, then there was light? This supernatural occurrence has essentially been scientifically proven. Natural forces cannot account for the creation of the universe. Unfortunately, many atheists and skeptics enter into the arena with a supernatural bias. So rather than consider the evidence that the universe was created out of nothing and continue to expand, they discount it because they cannot let a supreme being into the equation. Now I know this is a Christian apologetics episode, but as I've said before, the reason I cover politics, public policy, economics, and apologetics is because, well, number one, I'm interested in all those topics, and it is my podcast, but because there are reoccurring themes in all of them when it comes to skeptics. Here we have a bias against the supernatural, which also applies to the resurrection. In a future episode, we will discuss miracles. Again, skeptics come to the table with an anti-miracle bias. They claim miracles cannot occur, so they discount anything that is related to them, namely the creation of the universe, God, and ultimately the work and message of Jesus. Whether you are talking about climate change, abortion, the unconstitutional nature of the federal government, social security, minimum wage, immigration, gun control, or health reform, anyone who dares to examine the evidence of these things and present that evidence are shouted down in the public square. They are called climate deniers. They are accused of trying to control women's bodies. They are told that the Constitution is antiquated. They are accused of wanting to take away old people's retirement, accused of wanting to separate families. They are browbeaten over their obsession with guns and accused of wanting to deny people the right to health care. When it comes to apologetics, skeptics will throw Bible thumper and evangelical as pejoratives. As I hopefully have laid out in previous episodes, there are well-documented, legitimate reasons to advocate for, or against, depending on the topic, any of these public policy positions. Skeptics come to the debate unwilling to debate because they know their arguments are weak or non-existent. So what's a skeptic to do? You've heard me say this before. If you have the truth on your side, pound the truth. If you don't have the truth on your side, pound the table and pound it loudly. So they name-call, shame, and chastise. They shut down debate or purposely omit facts that do not comport with their worldview. No substance is allowed in the debate. As I have often said, when your debate partner starts calling you names, you know you've won the debate. Well, you may ask, doesn't God need a cause? Who created God? Well, the law of causality says everything that comes to be needs a cause. Not everything needs a cause. So the argument is God is an eternal being. He did not have a beginning. Is that a completely satisfying answer? No, but we are dealing with limited information. We are seeking the truth given that limited information. Does it take more faith to buy that line of reasoning 
or the atheists that everything started from nothing. The bottom line is, if there is no God, why is there something rather than nothing? Norman Geisler and Frank Turek said, we are left with only two options. Either no one created something out of nothing, or else someone created something out of nothing. So did random, unintelligent forces of nature produce systems that exceed our intellectual capacity, or was an intelligent designer involved? Which view is more reasonable? I get it that this is heavy stuff. It blows my mind as much as I'm sure it does yours, but you have to ask yourself which argument makes the most sense. We as finite beings do not have to completely understand it, but what does the evidence suggest? So that is a little bit about the origin of the universe. What about the complexity of it? Do you have enough faith to think that it was done by chance? This is called the design of the universe, or the anthropic principle. This argument points to the precision in which the universe and the Earth exists, and asks a simple question. Is it more likely that a designer, an intelligent designer, created all of this precise environment, or was it created by chance? It cites things such as the oxygen level on Earth is 21% of the atmosphere. If it was 25%, fires would erupt everywhere. If it were 15%, humans would suffocate. The Moon-Earth gravitational interaction. If the interaction were greater, we'd have tidal effects in the ocean, and the Earth's rotational period would be impacted. If it were less, the orbital changes would cause climate chaos. What about carbon dioxide and water vapor levels? If they were higher, greenhouse effect would ensue. If lower, plants would not be able to go through the process of photosynthesis. What about gravity? If it were altered by the most minuscule amount, the number is something like 0.000000%. It's like 25 or 30 zeros. The sun would not exist. And without that, the Earth fails to support life. The thickness of the Earth's crust impacts the level of oxygen release and protects us from increased tectonic activity. The Earth's rotation of 24 hours has a number of implications as well. The Earth's axis tilt. It goes on and on. That's just some of the precise components about life on Earth. What about the universe as a whole? There are more than 100, quote, very narrowly defined constants that strongly point to an intelligent designer. These include specifications of gravitational forces, the precision of the expansion of the universe. For example, it would collapse into itself if it expanded at a rate one millionth more slowly. Or the fact that Jupiter protects the Earth from being bombarded by space debris. Nobel laureate Arno Penzias, co-discoverer of the radiation afterglow, put it this way. Astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing and delicately balanced to provide exactly the conditions required to support life. In the absence of an absurdly improbable accident, the observations of modern science seem to suggest an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan. Let's wrap up this episode with a discussion about the design of life, or the teleological argument. One very popular theory is Darwinism, or naturalists, evolutionists. They believe everything evolved. If that's true, where did the first life come from? Was it spontaneous? Was it accidental? It takes a lot of faith to believe that something came from nothing, especially when this spontaneous generation of life has never been observed. What it comes down to is an anti-God bias. You gotta keep God out of it. Others have described this as not allowing a divine foot in the door at any cost. So they are forced to defend a non-scientific position based on what? Faith, of course. So they demand that faith in God, faith in a higher power be left out of the debate. 
but they are allowed to have faith in what? Nothing? One of the problems with the evolution concept is that while microevolution has been observed, macroevolution has not. Darwinists want you to believe that macroevolution is a real thing. The idea being that a bacteria evolved into a fruit fly, and the fruit fly evolved into a spider, a spider into something else, a bird evolved into a reptile, Venus flytrap, cats, dogs, hippopotamuses, squids, zebras, etc. Eventually, man evolved from the ape. The problem is bacteria may evolve such as it can survive an antibiotic, then when it reproduces its offspring may be resistant to it, that's microevolution, but it's still a bacteria. Another example is dogs and the mixed breeding that goes on. Regardless of what mix the breeder comes up with, a labradoodle is still a dog. Natural selection may be able to explain the survival of a species, but it cannot explain the arrival of a species. That's from I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, page 44. Darwin had no concept of the molecular level or DNA. He did not have powerful microscopes like we have today. He thought that a cell was simple and without structure, instead of this highly complex with like almost factory-like functions with different components operating with a distinct function. All right, so this is another opportunity for me to point out connections between topics covered in the podcast. So as I mentioned earlier, we always hear how antiquated the Constitution is. It's written by a bunch of racist white guys in the 18th century, and it needs to adapt at the times. You know the routine. So on the one hand, the Constitution should be ignored or changed on a whim because those guys who wrote it 250 years ago had no idea what America would be like today. However, some of these same people will deny an intellectual designer based on a Darwinistic view of the world, despite the fact that the guy's level of knowledge was minimal, to say the least, compared to verifiable scientific facts as we know them today. They will hang their hat on Darwin's theories, a guy who died 137 years ago and had access to none of the scientific advances we have today. As Frank Turek and Norman Geisler would say, I don't have enough faith to believe in Darwinist natural selection, something from nothing hypothesis. It takes less faith to believe in an intelligent designer. Now don't get me wrong, Darwin's observations at the time in history are valuable, but with the advances of science they have been proven inadequate and often wrong. If Darwin's theories were true, wouldn't you expect the fossil record to provide evidence of his incremental gradualism? But it doesn't. There should be thousands if not millions of transitional fossils, but there aren't. Darwin, natural selection, become a god to many advocates. Just like other topics we have discussed in this podcast, climate change becomes a god to its advocates. Abortion becomes a god to a particular unnamed political party. It's dogma. It's secular religion. As we wrap up this episode, let me leave you with this. Earlier this month, a long-kept list of PhD scientists who dissent from Darwinism reached a milestone. It crossed the threshold of a thousand signers, and it's right up the alley of this conversation. It's officially called the Scientific Dissent from Darwinism. It's a simple 32-word statement that reads, quote, we are skeptical of claims for the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. Careful examination of the evidence for Darwinian theory should be encouraged. That's it. It's a call for a truth quest. Signing the statement does not mean these scholars endorse alternative theories such as intelligent design, but it is a much-needed putting on the brakes of this wholesale swallowing and unchallenging of Darwinism. It's taught in schools where God has been removed. 
It goes largely unchallenged in the media and in academia where groupthink prevails. So why do we still have discussions and arguments over Darwinism? Because some people need to explain the world without God. They need Darwinism to be true. As I said, it becomes its own religion of sorts, an orthodoxy. Christians don't need things to be true. We just try to discover the truth. See, Christians are not afraid of science. As C.S. Lewis said, men became scientific because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in a law giver. Hopefully this episode gave you something to think about, regardless of your religious leanings. I encourage you to continue studying the topic, grab a copy of I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, visit crossexamine.org, and start exploring other writers and thinkers on the topic of Christian apologetics. Heck, consider starting your own podcast on the topic. Please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast.